and welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, two stories from H. H. Monroe, known to most of us as Saki. The first, Shredni Vashtar, and the second tale, the story of St. Vespaleus. Hector Hugh Monroe, also known as Saki, was born in Akyab, British Burma, which was then still part of British India, and was governed from Calcutta, under the authority of the Viceroy of India. Saki was the son of Charles Augustus Monroe, an Inspector General for the Indian Imperial Police, and his wife, Mary Frances Mercer, was the daughter of Rear Admiral Samuel Mercer. After his wife's early death, Charles Monroe sent his children, including two-year-old Hector, home to England. The children were sent to Broadgate Villa in Pilton Village near Barnstaple, North Devon, to be raised by their grandmother and paternal maiden aunts, Charlotte and Augusta, in a strict and puritanical household. It is said that his aunts were most likely models for some of his characters, notably the aunt in the lumber room and the guardian in today's first story, Shredni Vastar. In this story, a young boy, tormented by his insular life and not being allowed to keep a pet, has a polecat ferret outside in the barn. If raised with love, these hybrid ferrets make good pets and hunting companions, but they hate to be caged. And so do young boys. Our second tale, the story of St. Vespaleus, takes place on a rainy afternoon in a fictional kingdom ruled by a pagan king who finds himself challenged by the rising tide of Christianity. And now, Shredni Vashtar by Saki. A quick note, both tales were published in Saki's book, The Chronicles of Clovis, in 1911. Conradin was ten years old, and the doctor had pronounced his professional opinion that the boy would not live another five years. The doctor was silky and effete, and counted for little, but his opinion was endorsed by Mrs. Dirap, who counted for nearly everything. Mrs. Dirap was Conradin's cousin and guardian, and in his eyes she represented those three-fifths of the world that are necessary and disagreeable and real. The other two-fifths, in perpetual antagonism to the foregoing, were summed up in himself and his imagination. One of these days, Conradin supposed he would succumb to the mastering pressure of wearisome necessary things, such as illnesses and coddling restrictions and drawn-out dullness. Without his imagination, which was rampant under the spur of loneliness, he would have succumbed long ago. Mrs. Durop would never, in her honestest moments, have confessed to herself that she disliked Conradin, though she might have been dimly aware that thwarting him for his good was a duty which she did not find particularly irksome. Conradin hated her with a desperate sincerity which he was perfectly able to mask. Such few pleasures as he could contrive for himself gained an added relish from the likelihood that they would be displeasing to his guardian, and from the realm of his imagination she was locked out an unclean thing, which should find no entrance. In the dull, cheerless garden, overlooked by so many windows that were ready to open with a message not to do this or not to do that, or a reminder that medicines were due, he found little attraction. The few fruit trees that it contained were set jealously apart from his plucking, as though they were rare specimens of their kind blooming in an arid waste. 
it would probably have been difficult to find a market gardener who would have offered ten shillings for their entire yearly produce. In a forgotten corner, however, almost hidden behind a dismal shrubbery, was a disused tool-shed of respectable proportions, and within its walls Conradin found a haven, something that took on the varying aspects of a playroom and a cathedral. He had peopled it with a legion of familiar phantoms, evoked partly from fragments of history and partly from his own brain, but it also boasted two inmates of flesh and blood. In one corner lived a ragged, plumaged Howden hen, on which the boy lavished an affection that had scarcely another outlet. Further back in the gloom stood a large hutch, divided into two compartments, one of which was fronted with close iron bars. This was the abode of a large polecat ferret, which a friendly butcher boy had once smuggled, cage and all, into its present quarters, in exchange for a long secreted hoard of small silver. Conradin was dreadfully afraid of the lithe, sharp-fanged beast, but it was his most treasured possession. Its very presence in the tool-shed was a secret and fearful joy, to be kept scrupulously from the knowledge of the woman, as he privately dubbed his cousin. And one day, out of heaven knows what material, he spun the beast a wonderful name, and from that moment it grew into a god and a religion. The woman indulged in religion once a week at a church nearby, and took Conradin with her, but to him the church service was an alien life in the house of Rimen. Every Thursday, in the dim and musty silence of the tool-shed, he worshipped with mystic and elaborate ceremonial before the wooden hutch where dwelt Shredni Vashtar, the great ferret. Red flowers in their season and scarlet berries in the wintertime were offered at his shrine, for he was a god who laid some special stress on the fierce, impatient side of things, as opposed to the woman's religion, which, as far as Conradin could observe, went to great lengths in the contrary direction. And on great festivals, powdered nutmeg was strewn in front of his hutch, an important feature of the offering being that the nutmeg had to be stolen. These festivals were of irregular occurrence, and were chiefly appointed to celebrate some passing event. On one occasion, when Mrs. de Rapp suffered from acute toothache for three days, Conradin kept up the festival during the entire three days, and almost succeeded in persuading himself that Shredni Vashtar was personally responsible for the toothache. If the malady had lasted for another day, his supply of nutmeg would have given out. The Howden hen was never drawn into the cult of Shredni Vashtar. Conradin had long ago settled that she was an Anabaptist. He did not pretend to have the remotest knowledge as to what an Anabaptist was, but he privately hoped that it was dashing and not very respectable. Mrs. Durop was the ground plan on which he based and detested all respectability. After a while, Conradin's absorption in the tool shed began to attract the notice of his guardian. "'It is not good for him to be pottering down there in all weathers,' she promptly decided, and at breakfast one morning she announced that the Howden hen had been sold and taken away overnight. With her short-sighted eyes she peered at Conradin, waiting for an outbreak of rage and sorrow, which she was ready to rebuke with a flow of excellent precepts and reasoning. But Conradin said nothing. There was nothing to be said. Something perhaps in his white set face gave her a momentary qualm, for at tea that afternoon there was toast on the table, 
a delicacy which she usually banned on the ground that it was bad for him, also because the making of it gave her trouble, a deadly offense in the middle-class feminine eye. "'I thought you liked toast,' she exclaimed with an injured air, observing that he did not touch it. "'Sometimes,' said Conradin. "'In the shed that evening there was an innovation in the worship of the hutch god. "'Conradin had been wont to chant his praises. "'Tonight he asked a boon. "'Do one thing for me, Shredni Vashtar.' "'The thing was not specified. "'As Shredni Vashtar was a god, he must be supposed to know.' And choking back a sob as he looked at that other empty corner, Conradin went back to the world he so hated. And every night, in the welcome darkness of his bedroom, and every evening in the dusk of the tool shed, Conradin's bitter litany went up. Do one thing for me, Shredni Vashtar. Mrs. Durop noticed that the visits to the shed did not cease, and one day she made a further journey of inspection. "'What are you keeping in that locked hutch?' she asked. "'I believe it's guinea pigs. "'I'll have them all cleared away.' "'Conradin shut his lips tight, "'but the woman ransacked his bedroom "'till she found the carefully hidden key "'and forthwith marched down to the shed "'to complete her discovery. "'It was a cold afternoon, "'and Conradin had been bidden to keep to the house. "'From the furthest window of the dining room,' The door of the shed could just be seen beyond the corner of the shrubbery, and there Conradin stationed himself. He saw the woman enter, and then he imagined her opening the door of the sacred hutch and peering down with her short-sighted eyes into the thick straw bed where his god lay hidden. Perhaps she would prod at the straw in her clumsy impatience, and Conradin fervently breathed his prayer for the last time. But he knew as he prayed that he did not believe— he knew that the woman would come out presently with that pursed smile he loathed so well on her face and that in an hour or two the gardener would carry away his wonderful god, a god no longer, but a simple brown ferret in a hutch. And he knew that the woman would triumph always as she triumphed now and that he would grow ever more sickly under her pestering and domineering and superior wisdom till one day nothing would matter much more with him and the doctor would be proved right. And in the sting and misery of his defeat, he began to chant loudly and defiantly the hymn of his threatened idol. Shredni Vastar went forth. His thoughts were red thoughts, and his teeth were white. His enemies called for peace, but he brought them death. Shredni Vastar, the beautiful. And then of a sudden he stopped his chanting and drew closer to the window pane. The door of the shed still stood ajar as it had been left, and the minutes were slipping by. They were long minutes, but they slipped by nevertheless. He watched the starlings running and flying in little parties across the lawn. He counted them over and over again, with one eye always on that swinging door. A sour-faced maid came in to lay the table for tea, and still Conradin stood and waited and watched. Hope had crept by inches into his heart, and now a look of triumph began to blaze in his eyes that had only known the wistful patience of defeat. Under his breath, with a furtive exultation, he began once again the pan of victory and devastation. 
and presently his eyes were rewarded. Out through that doorway came a long, low, yellow and brown beast, with eyes a-blink in the waning daylight, and dark wet stains around the fur of his jaws and throat. Conradin dropped on his knees. The great polecat ferret made its way down to a small brook at the foot of the garden, drank for a moment, and then crossed a little plank bridge and was lost to sight in the bushes. Such was the passing of Shredni Vashtar. "'Tea is ready,' said the sour-faced maid. "'Where is the mistress?' "'She went down to the shed some time ago,' said Conradin. And while the maid went to summon her mistress to tea, Conradin fished a toasting fork out of the sideboard drawer and proceeded to toast himself a piece of bread. And during the toasting of it, and the buttering of it with much butter, and the slow enjoyment of eating it, Conradin listened to the noises and silences which fell in quick spasms beyond the dining-room door. The loud, foolish screaming of the maid, the answering chorus of wondering ejaculations from the kitchen region, the scuttering footsteps and hurried embassies for outside help, and then, after a lull, the scared sobbings and the shuffling tread of those who bore a heavy burden into the house. Who ever will break it to the poor child? I, could, I couldn't for the life of me, exclaimed a shrill voice. And while they debated the matter among themselves, Conrad made himself another piece of toast. And now, our second story by Saki, the story of St. Vespalius. "'Tell me a story,' said the baroness, staring out despairingly at the rain. It was that light, apologetic sort of rain that looks as if it was going to leave off every minute and goes on for the greater part of the afternoon. "'What sort of story?' asked Clovis, giving his croquet mallet a valedictory shove into retirement. "'One just true enough to be interesting and not true enough to be tiresome,' said the baroness." Clovis rearranged several cushions to his personal solace and satisfaction. He knew that the Baroness liked her guests to be comfortable, and he thought it right to respect her wishes in that particular. "'Have I ever told you the story of a St. Vespalius?' he asked. "'You've told me stories about grand dukes and lion tamers and financiers' widows and a postmaster in Herzegovina,' said the Baroness." and about an Italian jockey and an amateur governess who went to Warsaw, and several about your mother, but certainly never anything about a saint. This story happened a long while ago, he said, in those uncomfortable piebald times when a third of the people were pagan, and a third Christian, and the biggest third of all, just followed whichever religion the court happened to profess, there was a certain king, called Hikrikos, who had a fearful temper, and no immediate successor in his own family. His married sister, however, had provided him with a large stock of nephews from which to select his heir. And the most eligible and royally approved of all of these nephews was the sixteen-year-old Vespalius. He was the best-looking, and the best horseman and javelin-thrower and had that priceless princely gift of being able to walk past a supplicant with an air of not having seen him, but would certainly have given something if he had. My mother has that gift, to a certain extent, 
she can go smilingly and financially unscathed through a charity bazaar and meet the organizers next day with a solicitous, had I but known you were in need of funds, air, that is really rather a triumph than audacity. Now Hikrikos was a pagan of the first water and kept the worship of the sacred serpents who lived in a hollowed grove on a hill near the royal palace up to a high pitch of enthusiasm. The common people were allowed to please themselves within certain discreet limits in the matter of private religion, but any official in the service of the court who went over to the new cult was looked down on, literally as well as metaphorically, the looking down being done from the gallery that ran round the royal bear pit. Consequently, there was considerable scandal and consternation when a youthful Vespalius appeared one day at a court function with a rosary tucked into his belt, and announced in reply to angry questionings that he had decided to adopt Christianity, or at any rate, to give it a try. If it had been any of the other nephews, the king would possibly have ordered something drastic in the way of scourging and banishment. But in the case of the favored Vespalius, he determined to look on the whole thing much as a modern father might regard the announced intention of his son to adapt the stage as a profession. He sent accordingly for the royal librarian. The royal library in those days was not a very extensive affair, and the keeper of the king's books had a great deal of leisure on his hands. Consequently, he was in frequent demand for the settlement of other people's affairs when these strayed beyond the normal limits and got temporarily unmanageable. "'You must reason with Prince Vespalius,' said the king, "'and impress upon him the error of his ways. "'We cannot have the heir to the throne setting such a dangerous example.' "'But where shall I find the necessary arguments?' asked the librarian. "'I give you free leave to pick and choose your arguments in the royal woods and coppices,' said the king. "'If you cannot get together some cutting observations and stinging retorts suitable to the occasion,' "'You are a person of very poor resource.' "'So the librarian went into the woods "'and gathered a goodly selection "'of highly argumentative rods and switches, "'and then proceeded to reason with Vespalius "'on the folly and iniquity, "'and above all the unseemliness of his conduct. "'His reasoning left a deep impression on the young prince, "'an impression which lasted for many weeks, "'during which time nothing more was heard "'about the unfortunate lapse into Christianity.' Then a further scandal of the same nature agitated the court. At a time when he should have been engaged in audibly invoking the gracious protection and patronage of the holy serpents, Vespelius was heard singing a chant in honor of St. Odilo of Cluny. The king was furious at this new outbreak and began to take a gloomy view of the situation. Vespelius was evidently going to show a dangerous obstinacy in persisting in his heresy and yet there was nothing in his appearance to justify such perverseness. He had not the pale eye of the fanatic or the mystic look of the dreamer. On the contrary, he was quite the best-looking boy at court. He had an elegant, well-knit figure, a healthy complexion, eyes the color of very ripe mulberries, and dark hair, smooth, and very well cared for. "'It sounds like a description of what you imagine yourself to have been like at the age of sixteen, said the baroness. "'My mother has probably been showing you some of my early photographs.' 
said Clovis. Having turned the sarcasm into a compliment, he resumed his story. The king had Vespaluus shut up in a dark tower for three days, with nothing but bread and water to live on. The squealing and fluttering of bats to listen to, and drifting clouds to watch through one little window slit. The anti-pagan section of the community began to talk portentously of the boy martyr. The martyrdom was mitigated, as far as the food was concerned, by the carelessness of the tower warden, who, once or twice, left a portion of his own supper of broiled meat and fruit and wine, by mistake, in the prince's cell. After the punishment was over, Despelius was closely watched for any further symptom of religious perversity, for the king was determined to stand no more opposition on so important a matter, even from a favorite nephew. If there was any more of this nonsense, he said, the succession to the throne would have to be altered. For a time all went well. The festival of summer sports was approaching, and the young Vespalius was too engrossed in wrestling and foot-running and javelin-throwing competitions to bother himself with the strife of conflicting religious systems. Then, however, came the great culminating feature of the summer festival, the ceremonial dance round the grove of the sacred serpents, and Vespalius, as we should say, sat it out. The affront to the state religion was too public and ostentatious to be overlooked, even if the king had been so minded, and he was not in the least so minded. For a day and a half he sat apart and brooded, and every one thought he was debating within himself the question of the young prince's death or pardon. As a matter of fact, he was merely thinking out the manner of the boy's death. As the thing had to be done, and was bound to attract an enormous amount of public attention in any case, it was as well to make it as spectacular and impressive as possible. Apart from his unfortunate taste in religions, said the king, and his obstinacy in adhering to it, he is a sweet and pleasant youth. Therefore it is meet and fitting that he should be done to death by the winged envoys of sweetness. <clears throat> Your majesty means, said the royal librarian. I mean, said the king, that he shall be stung to death by bees, by the royal bees, of course. A most elegant death, said the librarian. Elegant and spectacular, and decidedly painful, said the king. It fulfills all the conditions that could be wished for. Well, the king himself thought out all the details of the execution ceremony. Vespelius was to be stripped of his clothes, his hands were to be bound behind him, and he was then to be slung in a recumbent position immediately above three of the largest of the royal beehives, so that the least movement of his body would bring him in jarring contact with them. The rest could be safely left to the bees. The death throes, the king computed, might last anything from fifteen to forty minutes, though there was division of opinion and considerable wagering among the other nephews as to whether death might not be almost instantaneous or, on the other hand, whether it might not be deferred for a couple of hours. Anyway, they all agreed, it was vastly preferable to being thrown down into an evil-smelling bear pit and being clawed and mauled to death by imperfectly carnivorous animals. It so happened, however, that the keeper of the royal hives had leanings toward Christianity himself, and moreover, like most of the court officials, he was very much attached 
to Vespalios. On the eve of the execution, therefore, he busied himself with removing the stings from all the royal bees. It was a long and delicate operation, but he was an expert bee-master, and by working hard nearly all night, he succeeded in disarming all, or almost all, of the hive inmates. "'I didn't know you could take the sting from a live bee,' said the baroness, incredulously. "'Every profession has its secrets,' replied Clovis. "'If it hadn't, it wouldn't be a profession.' "'Well, the moment for the execution arrived. "'The king and the court took their places, "'and accommodation was found for as many of the populace "'as wished to witness the unusual spectacle.' Fortunately, the royal bee-yard was of considerable dimensions, and was commanded, moreover, by the terraces that ran round the royal gardens. With a little squeezing and the erection of a few platforms, room was found for everybody. Vespelius was carried into the open space in front of the hives, blushing and slightly embarrassed, but not at all displeased at the attention which was being centred on him. "'He seems to have resembled you in more things than appearance.' "'said the baroness. "'Don't interrupt at a critical point in the story,' said Clovis. "'As soon as he had been carefully adjusted "'in the prescribed position over the hives, "'and almost before the jailers had time "'to retire to a safe distance, "'Vespelius gave a lusty and well-aimed kick "'which sent all three hives toppling one over another. "'The next moment he was wrapped from head to foot in bees.' Each individual insect nursed the dreadful and humiliating knowledge that in the supreme hour of catastrophe it could not sting, but each felt that it ought to pretend to. Vespelius squealed and wriggled with laughter, for he was being tickled nearly to death, and now and again he gave a furious kick and used a bad word as one of the few bees that had escaped disarmament got its protest home. But the spectators saw with amazement that he showed no signs of approaching death agony, and as the bees dropped wearily away in clusters from his body, his flesh was seen to be as white and smooth as before the ordeal, with a shiny glaze from the honey smear of innumerable bee feet, and here and there a small red spot where one of the rare stings had left its mark. It was obvious that a miracle had been performed in his favor, and one loud murmur of astonishment or exultation, rose from the onlooking crowd. The king gave orders for Vespalius to be taken down to await further orders, and stalked silently back to his midday meal, at which he was careful to eat heartily and drink copiously, as though nothing unusual had happened. After dinner he sent for the royal librarian. "'What is the meaning of this fiasco?' he demanded. "'Your Majesty,' "'said that official. "'Either there is something radically wrong with the bees.' "'There's nothing wrong with my bees,' said the king, haughtily. "'They are the best bees.' "'Or else,' said the librarian, "'there is something immediately right about Prince Vespalios.' "'If Vespalios is right, I must be wrong,' said the king. "'The librarian was silent for a moment.' Hasty speech had been the downfall of many. Ill-considered silence was the undoing of the luckless court functionary. Forgetting the restraint due to his dignity 
and the golden rule which imposes repose of mind and body after a heavy meal, the king rushed upon the keeper of the royal books and hit him repeatedly and promiscuously over the head with an ivory chessboard, a pewter wine flagon, and a brass candlestick. He knocked him violently and often against an iron torch sconce and kicked him thrice round the banqueting chamber with rapid energetic kicks. Finally, he dragged him down a long passage by the hair of his head and flung him out of a window into the courtyard below. "'Was he much hurt?' asked the baroness. "'More hurt than surprised,' said Clovis. "'You see, the king was notorious for his violent temper. However, this was the first time he had let himself go so unrestrainedly on the top of a heavy meal. The librarian lingered for many days. In fact, for all I know, he may have ultimately recovered. But Ecricos died that same evening. Vespalius had hardly finished getting the honey stains off his body before a hurried deputation came to put the coronation oil on his head. And what with the publicly witnessed miracle and the accession of the Christian sovereign, it was not surprising that there was a general scramble of converts to the new religion. A hastily consecrated bishop was overworked with a rush of baptisms in the hastily improvised cathedral of St. Odolo, and the boy martyr that might have been was transposed in the popular imagination into a royal boy saint whose fame attracted throngs of curious and devout sightseers to the capital. Vespalius, who was busily engaged in organizing the games and athletic contest that were to mark the commencement of his reign, had no time to give heed to the religious fervor which was effervescing round his personality. The first indication he had of the existing state of affairs was when the court chamberlain, a recent and very ardent addition to the Christian community, brought for his approval the outlines of a projected ceremonial cutting down of the idolatrous serpent grove. "'Your Majesty will be graciously pleased to cut down the first tree with a specially consecrated axe,' said the obsequious official. "'I'll cut off your head first with any axe that comes handy,' said Vespalius indignantly. "'Do you suppose that I'm going to begin my reign by mortally affronting the sacred serpents? "'It would be most unlucky.' "'But your majesty's Christian principles!' exclaimed the bewildered chamberlain. "'I never had any,' said Vespalius. "'I used to pretend to be a Christian convert just to annoy Hikrikos. "'He used to fly into such delicious tempers. "'And it was rather fun being whipped and scolded "'and shut up in a tower all for nothing.' "'But as to turning Christian in real earnest, "'like you people seem to do, "'I couldn't think of such a thing. "'And the holy and esteemed serpents "'have always helped me when I prayed to them for success "'in my running and wrestling and hunting. "'And it was through their distinguished intercession "'that the bees were not able to hurt me with their stings. "'It would be black ingratitude to turn against their worship "'at the very outset of my reign. "'I hate you for suggesting it. The chamberlain wrung his hands despairingly. "'But your majesty,' he wailed, "'the people are reverencing you as a saint, "'and the nobles are being Christianized in batches. "'And neighboring potentates of that faith "'are sending special envoys to welcome you as a brother. "'There is some talk of making you the patron saint of beehives, "'and a certain shade of honey yellow "'has been christened Vespalusian gold at the emperor's court. "'You can't surely go back on all this.' 
"'I don't mind being reverenced and greeted and honored," said Vespalius. "'I don't even mind being sainted in moderation, "'as long as I'm not expected to be saintly as well. "'But I wish you clearly and finally to understand "'that I will not give up the worship "'of the august and auspicious serpents.' "'There was a world of unspoken bear-pit "'in the way he uttered those last words, "'and the mulberry-dark eyes flashed dangerously. "'A new reign,' said the Chamberlain to himself, "'but the same old temper. "'Finally, as a state necessity, "'the matter of the religions was compromised. "'At stated intervals, the king appeared before his subjects "'in the National Cathedral in the character of St. Vespalius, "'and the idolatrous grove was gradually pruned and lopped away till nothing remained of it. But the sacred and esteemed serpents were removed to a private shrubbery in the royal gardens, where Vespelius the pagan and certain members of his household devoutly and decently worshipped them. That possibly is the reason why the boy king's success in sports and hunting never deserted him to the end of his days, and that is also the reason why, in spite of the popular veneration for his sanctity, he never received official canonization. It has stopped raining, said the Baroness. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We're doing our best to reach 1001 Short Stories, and we still have a long way to go. Our supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network are helping us and we need your help as well. Please take a moment and visit our Patreon page and pledge a few dollars a month to keep us going. Thank you. And thanks for the many great reviews we've been receiving. Down Home, Great Reading, 5 Stars I love listening to the wide variety of stories, especially Sherlock Holmes. For someone who hasn't done a lot of pleasure reading, these tales not only entertain, but provide interesting knowledge about various parts of history and authorship. I have painted landscapes and remodeled while listening. Keep it coming. That one from Super Duper EZ via Apple Podcast US. And this one, Fantastic Storytelling, five stars. Thanks, John, for your dedication to bringing fantastic stories to life through your expert narration. I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to each new episode. I was thrilled when you took my first review on board and began including more stories from female authors. Fantastic job. Well done. That's from Airy from Oz, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, five stars. Trolls will be trolls. I love this podcast and think the narration and production are both excellent. I wish I'd shared my opinion before, but better late than never, I suppose. I hope you disregard the foolish listener who repeatedly pelts you with unfair and untrue criticism. Just chalk it up. To trolls will be trolls. Thanks, Catherine. That one from Cat and Cord, Apple Podcast, U.S. Wonderful stories, five stars. As a lover of authors such as M.R. James and H.P. Lovecraft, I really enjoy listening to these readings. It makes the mandatory housework a welcome break from work and study. John, you do a wonderful job. Thanks. Peepop67, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, great stories, five stars. I'm so lucky I found this podcast. The stories are great, especially the Sherlock Holmes stories. And the narrator's voice is so soothing. Keep them coming. 
especially those Sherlock Holmes stories. That one from Dwines29, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, wonderful. Been looking for something like this podcast for a while now. Glad I stumbled upon it. Great stories and very well read with an excellent voice. Big thumbs up from New South Wales, Australia. That one from Rennie Codgers at Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, excellent, five stars. Keep the stories coming, please. This is one of my favorite podcasts. That one from Weasel von Wieselberg, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, exceptional, one of my favorite podcasts. Great narration and production values. A real treat to have found this great collection of stories. That one from Podcast Consumer 22, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to write us these reviews. They matter a lot. And other people who are looking for new podcasts see these, and it draws them to our show. So you all are a huge help to us, and we appreciate it very much. We'll be back next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with brand new episodes. Take care, everybody.